Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter.com slash Joy Keys, and you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look me up, uh, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And I'm now on Instagram. Yes, lots of great pictures. You can tag me in a photo, and you might win a prize. You guys know I give away a lot of stuff. Today I'm giving away two different books. I just got off the phone with Pearl Clegg, author. She spoke about things I should have told my daughter, lies, lessons, and love affairs, and I'll be giving away a copy of her book. And today also I'll be giving away Alexis DeVoe's book, Yavo. Uh, so you got to stay tuned, follow on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, check me out, or you might not be able to win. I also want to say thank you guys for listening. Uh, past a million downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting the show. I really, really appreciate it, and I'm glad that you guys are enjoying talk, listening to my crazy voice, listening to my great guest. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I have on the line Alexis DeVoe. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Joy, and thank you for having me on your show today. Well, thank you for calling in. I just want to let the audience know that not only uh, have you written this book, but you're also the author of two award-winning biographies, Don't Explain, A Song of Billie Holiday, and Warrior Poet, A Biography of Audre Lorde. Um, you also uh, deal with children's books. You write plays. You're a journalist. You're an activist. So you have a lot of hats that you wear, um, and you were a professor. So I uh, just wanted to let them know about that. So this book is a, write, a book of fiction. It is not a biography, or is it? Are there biographical details in there that <laughs> are about you? <laughs> um, you know, I think every writer writes from the place that they themselves have witnessed and feels um, empowered by that particular place. In mm. this case, uh, Yabo, which is a, a novella, it is a work of fiction, is not um, necessarily wholly about me. At the same time, it does draw on some of the kind of meta questions, if you will, that I was concerned with over the course of uh, both seeding the work and, and actually getting it done. So there are mm-hmm. questions about life and love and death and loss and desire um, and place that are things that have... Um, captured me or captivated me, if you will, um, in recent years. And so I think in that way the book emanates from me, but it's not necessarily only about me. Right. Hi, I think I got cut off. Alexis, can you hear me? I'm still here. Hi, sorry about that. I I got cut off. Um, Well, I think um, the, the book is amazing. You really have to pay attention uh, when you're reading this book. Otherwise, you may get a little lost. Um, It's a whirlwind of ideas, and one of them is sex. I mean, bang, right at the beginning of the book. And when I talk sex, I'm talking about intercourse. I was like, Uh okay, hey, all right, hello, (laughs) you know, okay. Maybe I need to get an answer dish, open the window in here or something, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, um, and you're very free with that throughout the book. Um, it was unexpected in the beginning. I, you know, I had no idea um, that it was going to be the opening. Uh, I guess I'm a little bashful, whatever. But um, uh, 
So is that something that you are comfortable with? Um, do you do you think that other writers are not comfortable? Why? I mean, in our society, we are not very open about sex, even though that's how all of us got here is through sex. Yeah, um, I think that there's been a lot of pathologizing of sex and sexualities in our culture. Uh, and I don't think it's just that homosexual desire has been pathologized. I think all no, kinds no, no, of any, desire. all definitely yeah. yes, yes. So one of the things I wanted to do in this work, I think, it, you know, of all the conscious agendas, was to really um, put sort of all sexualities on the same plane. That is the plane of being alive, and mm. to not treat with anyone's sexual expression as if it was problematic, because in nature it's not. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, one of the questions I was really trying to address was, how can we imagine, or can we imagine, a world that we could live in in which that aspect of being alive is not treated as if it's a problem mm. for any of us? No matter how. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very difficult because also one of the things you bring up in the book uh, are uh, parents talking to children about sexuality or grandparents talking to children, um, and and that's a big deal also in our culture. Like, how do we talk to our kids about you know sex and intercourse and pleasure and all these things you know or masturbating things that are normal that happened to people all over the globe, no matter what your ethnicity, and yet nobody wants to talk about it, and like you said, pathologizes it. So um, I think that's an important issue you brought up. I mean, I have a daughter, and she'll probably kill me, but I did have to talk to her about sex. But my parents were open with me. You know, my parents were open with me and talked to me. They gave me a book, the same book my parents gave me, I gave them my daughter, it had nice little pictures, uh-huh. it talked about uh-huh. the chicken and the uh-huh. egg, it talked about the dog uh-huh. and the went to the human, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and then when she got older, I talked to her about the emotional aspect, which I think is actually one of the more important aspects, mm-hmm. the emotional part. I don't know, what do you think? Do you think the physicality is more important or the emotional part? No, I think the whole question of, of how to live an erotic experience is important. So whether... I don't think that we can separate the physical from the emotional or the the emotional from the spiritual or the spiritual from the ancestral. I think it's all all part of of how to express erotic desire and and to really understand that that eroticism exists in the everyday. It's not um particular to or peculiar to uh, what one does only in the bedroom or what one does only in the bedroom at night. So mm-hmm. to the extent that we can begin to imagine ways to communicate around um, sexuality as tied to the erotic uh, or or an erotic life, then I, I think that we'll become a healthier species. I agree, I agree. Now, one of the other things you talk about um, is one of the characters in the book, uh, Jules, uh, who is born a man and a woman. And uh, it's funny because in one of my sociology classes, we were talking about that um, issue and, you know, what do you call, what do the parents do? And they were talking about how in, in medicine, usually they decide to make the child a girl 
because in terms of the actual mechanics, it's easier for them to make a vagina than it is for them to make a penis. So they make a choice for the baby uh, that may not be the right choice. Um, and uh, in your book, your character, I mean, I hate to give it away, but the parents choose to let it be, let the, let the child be and decide as the child becomes an adult what they want to do or how they want to live. And then you explore that. The child, you explore the child's experience, but you also are exploring the parent's experience. Do you know someone who who was born this way or is just this based on readings and things like that? Uh, no, I don't know uh, someone who was born. I didn't know. I should say I have met someone since the publication of this of this book, who identifies okay. with um, the life of that particular character or those uh, the ideas shaping that character. But what I was um, at the same time, what I was trying to get at um, was that um, Jules is born not a man and a woman. Jules is born with genitalia that can't be determined as either male or female. Mm, okay, and, okay, and okay. And myself, I wasn't sure if that's what you were saying or not, or, or is it both. So I'm glad you clarified that. I'm glad. Yeah, so, and then the point was to to have someone from the medical community uh, speaking with the parents and then letting the parents decide or not decide what they were going mm-hmm. to do with their child. And I think what they decide, without giving too much away for your audience, is that, that they decide, especially the mother decides, that love is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. That it's not important to have the med- it's not more important to have the medical community determine the sex or the gender of your child as it is to love your child. So that's the decision that the parents make. Um, and then I won't speak to, you know, how that gets gets lived out for them later. But no, also, we don't, we don't want to give too much away. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, I am arrested by what we call these, you know, studies about babies and babies' bodies. And I, I was, um, ha- having read some of them and read about them, I was, struck by how much race was not spoken of in those mm. um, studies. And I wanted to address that as well, because um, as, as people of color, yes, we have histories uh, where difference has relegated us to um, margin, what we call marginalized experiences. And I wanted to present difference in a way that was even different from how we have experienced difference and also to really talk about um, difference as occurring in nature. Yes. Well, and also you deal with, you know, multi-ethnic characters in the book and how how they view the world being multi-ethnic characters and how the world is viewing them. Mm-hmm. And then how they have to navigate, you know, mm-hmm. around or within, um, and how they became multi-ethnic. You go back in time, and that's one of the issues I wanted to bring up. The representation of time is very fluid in your book, mm-hmm. and you talk about the here and now is is yesterday and tomorrow. How how did you come to that 
that viewpoint? Well, I actually was thinking about time for quite some time. And also (laughs) I had been thinking about time in in terms of of a non-Western epistemology, that is in terms of non-Western ways of knowing, specifically looking at how um, time gets constructed in a great deal of of, uh, African thought, particularly West African thought, recognizing that most of us whose ancestors um, came from here, came from the West Coast of Africa. So I was really trying to look at at notions of time or ways of thinking about time that are outside of the West. And when I was uh, looking at that and researching that question and, and, and thinking about it, I came to understand different notions of time, time as being much more circular and a lot less nonlinear than what we experience mm-hmm. here, for example, in the United States. And that seemed to speak uh, more directly to me and more directly to how I was coming to terms with notions of of, of the binaries, uh, life and death, for example, uh, yesterday and today, today and tomorrow. And so I wanted to situate that thinking in an aspect of West African thought in which we don't think about life and death in the ways that we think about it here in the United States as one state of being or another, that there is a kind of fluidity to those states of being that are central to how we um, experience the world and how we spiritualize the world. And so that's right. what I And also when you were writing, that mm-hmm. comes out in the writing because you're writing, for example, in one chapter, and then all of a sudden, you know, I think the character was walking across the bridge and the park, yeah. and then all of a sudden, boom, it switches over. And that's why I say to the audience, you got to be a little sharp. Don't fall asleep <laughs> while you're reading the book. you got to pay attention because you're like, well, wait, okay, we were there and now we're here, but then... Mm-hmm there is explaining why the characters are here now, you know. So it was very cool. I really appreciated that style um, of writing. And um, I think that uh, it was very well researched. One of the things I – well, let's start, actually. uh, One of the things I wanted to bring up was the name. Now, I was looking Yabo up, and I was looking it up. It was like a Japanese connection, but then there's also Yabo Niger or Niger or Nigeria. What is what? How did you come to name the book that, and, and what is the meaning for you? When I first um, started working on the book, when I first um, began to seed it, it was around 1994, and I had a graduate student at the University of Buffalo who was from West Togo in Africa. And I was talking to her, and I was telling her about this work I was beginning to um think about and that I, I I knew then because I was thinking about time even then and I knew then that I wanted something I wanted a way to express that that was again outside of Western notions and too specific specific to an African um uh, worldview. And so I, I said mm-hmm. to her, her name is now Doctor Sephora Bukhari, I said to Sephora for I, I, I'm wondering if you have a word in, in your language, in your cultural experience, that means the unbreakable thread. 
And she gave me this word immediately, Yabo. And as soon as I heard it, as soon as I wrote it down, it began to just resonate and expand. And all of the meanings of this idea of an unbreakable thread just began to unfold in that word. So I owe the title to my then graduate student now, Dr. Sephora Bukhari, and also to her deep faith in the connection between her and I, and that mm. it, too, represented an unbreakable thread. So it was meant to be to have that. Uh, as I was mentioning about the research, so that, that is the name of the book, but then also you talk about things like the Henrietta Marie, the boat, um, mm-hmm. and, and that actually happened off the coast of Florida, I believe it is. Um, I don't know if you want to explain to the audience a little bit about that, the finding of that boat and what the boat was. Well, um, as I said, I actually seeded the work, or the work was seeded in 1994. At the time, I was also working on the uh, biography of Audre Lorde, and the that that work, that biography, was just so consuming, and it was such a greedy project that I had to put the book away. But in the interim, a model of the Henrietta Marie was actually touring um, the country, and it, it actually in Buffalo, New York, where I was living, and I got to step on it to actually, um, to the extent that it was possible, just sort of live in that historical moment, mm. and so I, I actually got to to feel it, and when the book began again, that was in 2006, I was putting together the 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 research on uh the trans, transatlantic slave uh experiences with my own very you know, visceral experiences having been on 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 that Henrietta actual uh, Marie mm-hmm. yeah as it was docked in Buffalo New York and and hundreds of black people stood for hours waiting to stand on that ship and wow. to go into it and go down into the belly of it and to um, to the extent that we could witness and bear witness to that that history, which was to say that that history was present mm-hmm. or is a present, again, that, present history. Well, and, and again, that goes with the issue of time and how even yeah. though, you know, that yeah. happened so long ago and how it yeah. affects us and it affects our lives, and how going into something like a model of it, you know, gives you, uh, you know, the shivers, if you will, um, yeah. by going on something like that, you know. Um, uh, also, you brought up, which many people, the uh, African burial ground uh, in, in New York, and um, you, you wove a storyline uh, around that uh, and through that. And I think, again, the book is wonderful because, not only uh, is it a fictional, if you will, but it's still not, it's non-fictional and that it's very educational, I think. It's very educational in how to deal with humans, how humans can deal with others, how they can deal with themselves, and also in terms of historical, you know, historical events that happen in this country that many people are still not aware of, not familiar with, you know, maybe unless yeah. they went to college. <laughs> and even then, yeah. you know. Thank you very much. So, mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I think what was the what was the hardest part for you? How, how long did it take you to write? You said 1994, and then, you know, so so how long do you think in total did it take you to write the book? Well, uh, again, I started it in 1994, but I put it away for 10 years or so while I was writing the biography of Audre Lorde, Warrior Poet. And I didn't actually get back to physically working on it until 2006. Then it took a period of some six years from from then, uh, because I believe I had come to the end of the story sometime around 2012, and that's when I presented it to Lisa Moore, the publisher of Redbone Press, who um, believed in the work and, much to my uh, delight and and deep gratitude, uh, decided to publish it. So it was a work that was long coming. Mm. And to to say that it was only X number of years... um, would be one way of looking at it, but if you wanted to look at it in terms of of what it tries to speak to, how long it took isn't as important as the fact that it worked its way through to us Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. we can now uh, share it as a a three-dimensional reality and talk about it and uh, read it with each other and amongst each ourselves and and forward the ideas of it. Because I think that in many, many ways for me, as I think of it now, it really is a book about ideas. Yeah. Well, I think, like I mentioned earlier, it's a tool. It's actually a learning tool, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it makes you question your ideas. 